Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. It looks like they are really going to get Donald Trump this time. Okay. So are the walls closing in, Julie? That's how I know when they're going to get him for real. Tick-tock boom. <laughs> yes. The, his days are numbered. Even though he's not president anymore, they're still numbered because... Apparently, people were texting Mark Meadows on January 6th, telling him that Trump needed to say something. And according to Liz Cheney's calculation, which we can get into, which is way wrong, um, he did not act for a whole 187 minutes on January 6th as his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was getting frantic texts from Fox News hosts and other people begging him to tell Trump to get the furry QAnon shaman out of the Senate gallery because he was defiling it more than say, you know, Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell or pretty much anybody else who was in the Senate at that time. Um, so I saw that there was like a big hubbub earlier this week because these emails or text messages were released um, showing that these Fox News hosts were appalled at the political violence. And I was thinking, like, what what do they think that that how has that hurt anybody? You know what I mean? Like they, they were like, stop this. This is bad. The president needs to come out and say something. So it's like, how is that bad or embarrassing or a gotcha? Um, also, I don't remember the exact timeline, so maybe you remember, but didn't all the social media companies like ban Trump from posting? So how long after the events of January 6th did that happen? I mean, was he able to post on anything? I, I mean, I, I don't know. Well, let's go through the timeline. So what we're talking about is a series of text messages that for some reason Mark Meadows thought would be a good idea to turn over to the January 6th committee um, because you know, it's okay to trust Liz Cheney and Adam Schiff. Why not just hand it over without a fight? So, and of course, Mark Meadows learned too late uh, and actually issued, submitted a really good filing detailing all the illegitimacy of the current uh, construction of the January 6th Select Committee. But the damage has already been done. Liz Cheney, in her highly dramatic, typical fashion, was reading a series of text messages that Mark Meadows received that afternoon from people like Sean Hannity, Brian Kilmeade, and Laura Ingram at Fox News and some other unidentified people. So what Liz Cheney is setting up is um, not just a dereliction of duty by the president, which I believe was the term that she used, but also going after him for, once again, obstruction of justice, which they've already tried a number of occasions, especially after the uh, conclusion of the Mueller investigation. So, but her timeline, unsurprisingly, is completely wrong because what happened that day is Trump's speech wrapped up at about 1.10 that afternoon just as the joint session of Congress was getting underway. So 187 minutes is like, what, three hours and 11 minutes or so, over three hours. Um, So his people who were at his speech already, if they wrapped up at 110, 
didn't even get to the Capitol complex most or Capitol uh, campus until roughly two o'clock. It's like 1.7 mile walk to get there. It's highly crowded. There's hundreds of thousands of people in the nation's capital that day. Liz, the first official breach of the Capitol building happened at 2.13 when Dominic Pizzola took a riot shield and smashed a window on the east side, allowing some people to get in. Trump's first tweet calling for law and order and to respect police comes at 2.38. So I don't well, there, know there how that Wasn't there trouble outside, like trouble going on outside the Capitol before Trump even stopped speaking? Yes. Like, so, I, because I think the timeline is blurred, maybe intentionally, right, to make it seem like, it went on longer or that Trump could have had more control over it because from what I've read that people weren't able to get text messages or Twitter or anything because there were so many people. So I don't even know if Trump had said anything, if it would have gotten to them because I'm sure other people who knew people there were trying to contact their, their friends saying, Hey, this is going on, but nobody knew what was going on because unless you were right where the trouble was, it's a large, it's a large area around the Capitol. And then you're walking down the street to get to the Capitol. You have no idea what's going on there. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was just trying to nail down like exactly when things started to go sideways. So go ahead. Right. So there was a breach. The first now the entire grounds around the Capitol had been shut down for some reason and designated restricted area, which I don't think that that's really ever happened before, especially when something, you know, a major congressional proceeding is underway. And so there were hundreds of Proud Boys and infiltrated with their FBI informants who were walking from the Washington Monument to the Capitol. They got there about 12.30, 12.55, when the first breach of the outside, there's a thin line of police, Capitol Police unarmed, a couple bike racks, a little restricted area sign, and uh, Ryan Samsell, who is seen talking with Ray Epps, the mysterious Ray Epps, who still has not been charged with any crime, uh, and Ryan Sam- Samsell knocks down these lightweight metal racks, overruns a few of the cops, runs up the stairs, and he's followed by, I don't know, 200 or so Proud Boys at that time. They make their way to the west side of the building where you started to see some scuffles with police and also, um, you know, people starting to climb on the scaffolding, et cetera. So I don't know, was Trump even aware that that was happening. He went back to the White House after his speech. He was sort of following what was happening in Congress because the joint session was underway. Paul Gosar and Ted Cruz were already objecting, formally objecting to the results of the Arizona Electoral College, that uh, the election in that state. Um, But furthermore, what is Trump supposed to do? Give a national address at what, 145 and tell people to be nice outside? I I don't know what he was supposed to do. So the the texts that Liz Cheney read, and of course she intentionally omitted the timeline, but when you have Laura Ingram texting Mark Meadows saying, tell have Trump tell people to get out of inside of the building. 
people weren't inside of the building until after 2.15. I mean, by 2.30, that's when you had most people walking in. You had people walking in on the upper level from doors that had been opened by Capitol Police. Capitol Police are standing right there, letting about 300 people in. So when Laura Ingram sent that text, it had to have been after 2.15, maybe 2.30, 2.45. So Trump had already sent a tweet at 2.38. He sent another tweet at 3.13, posted another tweet saying, you know, we have to respect law enforcement. This must be peaceful, et cetera. Well, of course, that's a half hour after Capitol Police Officer Michael Byrd executed Ashley Babbitt almost at point blank range in the speaker's lobby. So and then he gives a formal he does a video message and it's posted on Twitter at like four, I believe, four seventeen. So her timeline is totally off. I don't know what they thought Trump was supposed to do outside of what he already did. It's not his job to secure the U.S. Capitol. The Democrats intentionally left it insecure. Muriel Bowser refused to uh, um, call the National Guards. Trump wanted about 10,000 National Guardsmen in the Capitol that day. She refused. She only had about 320 helping with police. They left it intentionally open. People who were arriving from Trump's speech, numbers of them have told me, they had no idea that the Capitol grounds had been restricted, had been shut off to the public. Um, and even people who walked inside thought that they were there legally because there were police standing right there letting them in and nobody was being arrested inside for being inside the building illegally. So I don't know what Liz Cheney is proving, except that she's a dunce and a useful idiot for the left, as of course she is. But to your point, what is this actually showing, except that there were people uh, on our side, quote unquote, who were concerned about what they were seeing. I know we were. I mean, I was watching some of the streaming and I was like, oh, my, I can't I couldn't believe what was going on. Um, I don't think anybody on the right, uh, the Trump supporters, I mean, I don't think anybody is rooting for political violence, especially because there had been two other rallies, um, I think one in December and one in November in D.C., with Trump supporters and there wasn't, nobody was provoking violence. I mean, they may have been the recipient. They were of the, the victim. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I also think that as is always the case at these really big events in DC, people's self coverage just goes bad. You know, they can't get on Twitter. They can't get text messages or phone calls. I mean, I, I think a lot of people just kind of walked into something they had no idea. And also there was always an event going to be outside the Capitol. Um, and there were permits that were pulled. People had a permit for an event, which makes it even, you know, more likely that people thought they were allowed to be there because there was, you know, they had a permit be an <laughs> event and the people who plan the event, I, I can't remember who they are, but, that they had pulled an event just what a mess so what's what's the latest I mean what what are they what do you think that they're trying to do like what are they are they trying to intimidate Trump supporters from airing their political grievances or are they trying to damage Trump so that he can't run in 2024 or both what do you what do you think 
Yeah, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think their number one goal is to make sure that Trump does not run again. I think they want to criminalize everyone around him from Mark Meadows to Jeffrey Clark, his deputy assistant attorney general at the time. Um, people like Steve Bannon, congressmen, you know, they're going to be going after sitting congressmen and women, too, for their complicity. Um, and so this is just the political end of what's happening in the Justice Department, which has been, as you and I've talked about on numerous occasions, this abusive, punitive uh, prosecution of now nearly 700 Americans for their minor involvement for the most most of them uh, of the events of January 6th. This is all leading up to, Liz, though, justification for new laws that this committee is eventually going to prepare and that is going to be considered by the House and, of course, the Senate. They want an entire new Patriot Act aimed at the political right where they can codify what they're already doing, whether it's this Justice Department, whether it's the select committee, whether it's redirecting uh, intelligence tools that are specifically aimed at foreign threats to now be aimed at domestic threats, which they already are doing, but they want to codify that. So they are trying to amass as much evidence that they think that they have to justify this new sort of Patriot Act. And this is all part of that performance. Um, I will say it's nice to hear finally from some of our quote unquote leaders on the right who have been completely silent in the face of what's happening to regular Americans by the Biden regime, now suddenly concerned about overreach and lack of separation of power and due process and fairness and everything else that has been completely obliterated for these other people. But now when it's aimed at their pals in Washington, it, it, it's an outrage. So better late than never, I guess. Well, the, the, the Democrats are running out of time in so far as next year, which is in like two weeks, basically, <laughs> is an election year. Uh, the Democrats are polling just atrocious. The, the polling is atrocious for them. A lot of, of Democrat politicians are not opting not to run again. Um, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have terrible, terrible uh, polling numbers as well. So they're not going to be able to use their coattails to uh you know, get anyone into office. The Democrats have like, what, a five person majority. So very slim and yep. really 50-50 in the Senate, except for Kamala, who breaks the ties. So they need to get this shit done before they lose all their power in the Senate and in the House. I don't know if we'll take the Senate back. I haven't looked too close. Um, but it doesn't look good for the Democrats keeping power in the House. And I also think that Right. At this point, people are so jaded and disgusted with all of these other political acts that we've all witnessed over the last five years, from the Russia collusion hoax to this bullshit uh, coronavirus hysteria, you know, the media just hysterical and all of these draconian measures and everything is so politicized. I just don't see the public going along with crazy Patriot Act type of powers for the government. I mean, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm just projecting myself, but I never was in favor of the Patriot Act. So I was in favor of the original one. But I do. I just don't know how they think that it's going to work, because I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to January 6th other than the media and the people that read The New York Times and The Washington Post. But that's not a lot of people. 
I mean, it's easy for us to read those things and think that they're having a tremendous influence, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think, Julie? Um, I, I don't know. I just don't think that they really have anything else to run on. And so they have to keep this fear going, whether it's fear of, you know, the insurrectionists or the fear of the anti-vaxxers or the anti-maskers or whatever it is, you know, leftists always authoritarians, Marxist, you know, uh, tyrannical regimes always rely on fear to get what they want. And so I think that that is their gambit moving forward. And that's why this is all sort of tied together because they don't have a positive message. Everything else, like Trump said, everything woke goes to shit. So everything, you know, everything else is really dismal uh, for the country right now. We're seeing now um, these big cities are really doing a 180 on the defund the police since their cities have turned into like New Jack City. London Breed gave a press conference a couple days ago in San Francisco, you know, talking tough about all these crime waves and violence going on in the city when, of course, they were all about defunding the police and they stopped prosecuting crimes. I don't even think there's like a Walgreens or a CVS left in San Francisco because they just left um, because, you know, people were looting them and nothing was there was no uh, nothing to, to they weren't getting arrested and there was certainly no just trying to dissuade them by threat of punishment. There wasn't any punishment. So, you know, the extreme lefty policies don't really resonate with the, the average person. And at the end of the day, I mean, when you're like an, a, rich, a rich elite person, and you can afford to live isolated from the consequences of your own bad policy. There's still a lot of people that don't and they don't want to live in unsafe areas. So um, I think people are kind of hip to the progressive overreach. And so I'm hoping that'll kind of transcend when we start giving the government even more power to, I don't know, punish political enemies or the un, the undesirable people with the undesirable political position. So, you know, um, I'm just wonder what they're, when they're going to get Trump, like how they're going to get him, you know, like on what, I guess they're trying to make an argument that he incited people to, to go do this. I don't know. I mean, do you have any idea of what how they're going to get Trump like in a in a criminal sense, not in a in a bad PR sense? Because let's be honest, they're not going to get get any worse PR than they've had for five years. You know what I mean? It's not like they've been keeping a card to play and it's going to finish Trump as far as just like nasty PR, nasty articles. So do you think they're going after him criminally? Um, well, here's what they're setting up, and this is what Liz Cheney and others have alluded to, and that is this ridiculous obstruction of an official proceeding charge, this 15C2 felony that has been slapped against about 230 defendants now in the January 6th prosecution. They toyed with this in the Mueller report. Um, they actually toyed with it before the Mueller report. Bill Barr even wrote that famous memo in 2018 that laid out all the legal details why 1512C2 was not applicable. Uh, It was supposed to protect the integrity of criminal investigations by Congress, not, you know, some ceremonial uh, event, which was really what happened on January 6th or in the Mueller report, 
Trump's alleged interfering with official proceedings by the FBI special counsel. So they're dragging this back up because, as you know, Liz, there are millions of Americans and especially the Democratic ruling class who are livid that not only Mueller did that come up with Russian collusion, but that he pretty much punted on the obstruction uh, angle of his report, which was the entire second half of his report that was issued in April of 2019. People are still pissed off about that. So they're kind of regurgitating that. Uh, They've applied it, like I said, to hundreds of Americans related to January 6th. They've had a number of plea deals where people now are going to prison, like Jacob Chansley, the alleged QAnon shaman who uh, was sentenced to 41 months in prison after he pleaded guilty to that charge. Uh, Who knows why? Um, But they're still seeking out. This is one of the biggest felony counts related to January 6th, it's sort of their head fake insurrection charge because, of course, no one has been charged with insurrection. So they're going after them for obstructing the official proceeding. It's a felony punishable by up to 20 years in prison. So it, it's significant for those who are pleading guilty or certainly anyone who will be convicted of it in a jury trial. So this is what they're re-earthing to go after Trump. So, again, just but just like Russian collusion. Whoops, that didn't happen. So here's obstruction. Now, whoops, it wasn't really an insurrection, but here's another obstruction charge. It's it's ridiculous. Well, I just think in the context of where we are now with the economy being, you know, really problematic, inflation, housing problems. um, I mean, are people going to put that aside? You know what I mean? And just stick with the Biden regime? I don't know. I'm I. I think that when you actually have a real problem, I mean, people don't have the luxury of obsessing over the latest Washington Post or New York Times gotcha article anymore because, you know, we, we have inflation and um, service is problematic. Um, we don't have enough workers in grocery stores or things or mm-hmm. restaurants are cutting their hours back. I and mean, there's just so many different problems going on right now that actually have a real world effect on Americans, you know, are they going to indulge in this? I don't, you know, who knows? I'm not, I'm not always right. Usually I'm though. Uh, (laughs) Isn't going to, this just isn't going to fly, but you know, I guess uh, this is just going to keep going on. Julie, will they be taking a break for the Christmas holiday or will we be getting (laughs) uh, hearings during uh, Christmas? Um, I believe that they, I think they're going to take a break. I, let's hope through Christmas. I think that Usually, the house, these lazy yeah. sacks of shit, are not even here in December, right? They, they, their Christmas starts like November 30th, and they are not hanging around in DC. So that they're still working, and Christmas is in like 10 days or less than 10 days, almost like basically a week. Uh, you know, said something, but I just, I have to say, I am skeptical that people are paying attention to this whether it's the individual people prosecuted or this particular committee display, I did see that Kevin McCarthy is getting pressure to kick out Kinsinger and Cheney from the Republican caucus. Okay. Um, why can't he think of that on his own? Big boy. I know, like, he can't. He can't. He's so awful. I mean, seriously, oh why God. is this even, why is this even something someone has to tell him to do? He should have said, if you go on that committee, I'm kicking you out of the party, but you know, Kinsinger's almost finished, right? He's redistricted. And then right. 
I don't know if Liz Cheney is going to win re-election in next year. Uh, and people, a lot of people are really mad at her. <laughs> so that's a problem. But he should kick him out of the party because he's, but he he hasn't thought of it. And he probably wouldn't do it. I, why? I, I don't know. Um, I I don't know. Uh, it's just, it, it's enraging because you could see the flip side. Once again, the Democrats, they're evil people. Um, but they know how to wield power. And so, you know, look what they've done to Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, they know how to how to sideline their political foes. The fact that Kevin McCarthy has not yet removed them all from the committee and stripped them of any access to any fundraising tools from the Republican official Republican Party platform. Like you said, Kinzinger's done in Illinois. He's not running. Uh, I've heard he might run for governor which is hilarious, but whatever. He'll be out of Congress, but who knows what's happening with Liz Cheney. Uh, this is just another embarrassment to the party. It's total humiliation um, to have Kevin McCarthy have the reins of power uh, in Congress right now. And, you know, it, it, we said this before, there's no point in Republicans taking over the House next year if Kevin McCarthy is still going to be in charge, because all of this will just be memory hold. And then they'll go back to talking about tax cuts and, you, you know, new trade it, deals. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's what you right. need to do. Um, I agree with you. And we've said that before, and we're going to keep saying it, that, you know, unless there's a leadership change in the House, you know, there's people aren't going to turn out and vote to put in another asshole to replace the previous asshole, you know? <laughs> um, no, but that that's what it's doing because really there's just a select number, a very small population of people that can entertain all of this Democrat showmanship and follow it like it's a soap opera. But the majority of people have real lives, you know, they're worried about COVID. They're, you know, some places don't have schools open every day of the week. Their kids have just been not in school for over a year. Um, they, they, some of them are working from home. Some of them are back in the office. I mean, the, people have real problems. Gas is up. So, you know, supply. So we have supply chain issues where, you know, we were told just, you know, last month, maybe you don't need a turkey for Thanksgiving. You know, maybe you don't have one. Maybe you just have a head of broccoli and you put it on a platter and you'd be like, we're going to carve up our broccoli now. <laughs> exactly. You know, that's, that's what we're saying. And in that condition, are people going to get that interested in litigating, you know, the guy who was president two years ago? I don't, I don't think so. But anyway, so Ju Julie and I have a treat for you. We have a guest that will be uh, talking about his book. It's Dr. Scott Atlas. His book is called A Plague Upon Our House. And Dr. Atlas was on an advisor to President Trump and uh, participated in the coronavirus task force and um, other was working with the government or tried to work with the government, Maybe actually kind of worked <laughs> against the government because the government's kind of bad. But right. he was trying to get good information to Trump. I read his book. I encourage you to buy it. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, it's horrifying, really. And I want to say it again. Um, and I'm going to I say this during the interview because we've already recorded it. But I just want to say it again. A lot of people have thought that Anthony Fauci was really, you know, responsible for a lot of these horrible things that we were subject to. The shutdowns, the masking, the hand sanitizer, the schools closing, not going to concerts, sporting events, just basically having our lives run for two years. 
But really, according to Scott Atlas, history's greatest monster is Deborah Burks. Okay, this woman, she is the one that was in charge of the task force. And Atlas says in his book, he's kind of unclear how who put her there. Like nobody knows who appointed her. And you know, Pence ran the VP. Pence ran ran the task force. But Deborah Burks is the one traipsing all over the U.S. telling the states you got to shut down, you got to shut everything down, you got to lock everyone up. So I feel like that's something that the public really doesn't know because Anthony Fauci does get a lot of hate. Now, is it deserved? Of course. And it's not enough. But still, people don't really identify Burks as the architect of of this. And it's really her. So anyway, here's the interview. We will not be here next week because it's Christmas. And ho, ho, I think ho. We'll, are we going to do Julie, do you want to do a show before New Year's? Not on New Year's Eve, but like the day before. I don't know what your plans are. So maybe we'll do a show. We need to, for sure. Okay, we do. We want to wrap up the year. So we will not be here next week, but we will be here in two weeks. So thank you for listening. And here is our interview with Scott Atlas. So I want to let you know, I read your book cover to cover. um, And I was one of the lucky people who could get a hold of it because apparently you were saying there's some supply issues. Hopefully it will be back in stock soon. And um. I want to have tell our listeners that they definitely want to read this book because Julie and I, we are very cynical regarding uh, government bureaucracies and the uh, capability of an average government bureaucrat. And I have to say, I was pretty shocked at how you describe what was going on at the COVID task force. And um. So I, I kind of want to talk about what I think is the biggest revelation in in the book. Um, and that is that everybody has really considered Anthony Fauci to be kind of the face of the pandemic. Um, he's constantly was on media almost 24 hours a day. People were burning candles with his face on it. People were getting him tattooed on their body. Just really gross stuff. Um, but in your book, what we, we learn really is that Deborah Burks is history's greatest monster. <laughs> I mean, she really um, was responsible for a lot of these unscientific and draconian policies that we all suffered for the last two years. Um, so when you first got into the, the task force, um, were you really surprised at this kind of lack of scientific rigor that you found with the other people that I guess the public had trusted their healthcare decisions to? Yes, I I was shocked at what I saw. Uh, I wasn't shocked at what they were saying because we knew what they were saying for the six months before I walked in the door. I didn't get there till the end of July, beginning of August 2020, and they were in charge for the previous six months. They continued to be in charge during the time I was there, and they continued after I left. And their policies, as we know, as the data has shown, uh, failed to stop the spread of the infection. They failed to stop people from dying, and they inflicted enormous harms, unspeakable harms, uh, particularly on low-income families and on our children. And that is historical, uh, really, fact. But what I was shocked at was... <clears throat> their lack of, okay, so I walked into the task force and uh, I came in with a completely different background. Uh, these people, Drs. Burks and Dr. and Fauci and Redfield, 
were the three doctors in charge of the medical side of the policy. Dr. Burks was the official director of the medical side of the policy. She was called task force coordinator. Dr. Fauci was the most visible face to the public, but he was not in charge uh, internally. And Dr. Redfield was the head of the CDC. But these three, this medical troika, what I call, um, was a trio of medical bureaucrats. Doctors Burks and Fauci were in their government bureaucratic positions for 40 years. I came in uh, with no government uh, really experience, no interest in government experience. I came in because I was a health policy expert. I was asked to come in because there were no health policy experts on the task force. That's point number one. Point number two, I was a health policy expert for the previous decade, actively working on health policy research at Stanford University's Hoover Institution full time. That was my faculty position. That is my faculty position today. Uh, the 10 years, uh, 10 years before I took that position, I was the professor in chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center. I had 25 years of medical science, clinical practice, and education and research in, in the highest levels of academic medicine. So I came in, I was asked my opinion by Vice President Pence on, for instance, the risk to children. The risk to healthy children is extremely low from COVID. That's proven. That was proven in the spring of 2020 in the world's literature. But the point here is that I came in to answer the question by citing the literature, by citing the scientific papers. I had 15, 20 papers in my hand and went through the data when I was asked my opinion. And doctors Fauci and Burks said nothing. They were, they were except calling me an outlier. There was no refutation of the scientific data. There was no evidence of critical thinking whatsoever. There was no data presented except for these sophomoric tables and charts that are basically a record of cases in various states uh, and color coding them on these arbitrary measures. This was not science. This was something that was available from public websites. Um, they never had any uh, you know, real scientific data to refute anything that I said and never cited any papers in my presence. The only thing that was done was an ad hominem attack on me because I was, quote, an outlier. And then they would go to their friends in the media. Uh, because remember, a government bureaucrat is in a position successfully for 40 years, not because they're politically neutral, but because they have the savvy to navigate a very political climate. They have friends in the agencies. They have friends in the media. They form friendships with each other to cover themselves for their own advancement. I'll give you a specific example. Dr. Burks said publicly in something like January 2021, it was after I left. I left at the end of November 2020. She said there was a pact among the three doctors that I mentioned, Fauci, Burks, Redfield, that if any of them were fired by President Trump, they would all quit. Okay, that, that's the behavior, in my opinion, of a government bureaucrat. That's not the behavior of people who actually want to help the country. You don't help the country by doing by forming a pact like that. So I brought in data. I brought in science. That's what you're supposed to do. You win an argument where I work at Hoover at Stanford University, everywhere I've been in my career, by knowing more.
you're not afraid to engage in a scientific debate on the science. That's what science is, uh, to actually, you know, look at the papers, look at the uh, numbers and critique things. Uh, having the critical thinking skills to understand that some published studies are garbage because the method section, the design of the study is not valid. Therefore, the conclusions are irrelevant. They're completely invalid. I'll give you another example of the difference. I was asked to advise the president. I came in not just with data, not just with studies. I came in and brought in the people doing the research on the pandemic to speak to the president. It was very important that the president of the United States hears the information, okay, not uh, not funneled, not filtered by a government bureaucrat. I asked and successfully brought in some of the best scientists in our country from Tufts University, pediatric infectious disease, public health, of virology, epidemiologists, medical scientists from Stanford, Harvard, Tufts, uh, UCLA. I brought, I arranged that meeting specifically so that Dr. Burks could attend with the president. And right before the meeting occurred, the day prior, she wrote an email saying she's not coming to the meeting. It wouldn't be good for her. Okay, this this is not the behavior yeah. of somebody who is uh, interested in in uh, interacting and learning from the experts doing the research, it's it's the behavior, in my opinion. I don't know what the motive was, but it's not the behavior of a scientist. And uh, you know, so Americans should be thrilled that people were brought in who were the experts to speak to the president. They should be relieved. Instead, Dr. Burks complained to the media and to the House of Representatives formally that. There were, quote, parallel streams of information being brought into the president that were not going through her. OK, that, I don't know what you say about somebody who has that attitude that all the information must come through her before meeting the president. I was not hired to be an advisor to Dr. Burks. I was not asked to help her. as I was asked to provide information to the president of the United States. And that's what I did. And Americans should be thrilled that there was somebody there that was not politically motivated that actually did that. Well, on what grounds did Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and uh, Dr. Redfield, on, on what did they base their authority if it wasn't the science? Because although you are a health policy analyst and they're, I guess, MDs, but I don't know how long it's been since they've treated anybody in a clinical setting. Um, wouldn't they be looking at the same kinds of studies that you were looking at? So if they weren't, then where were they coming up with these ideas of like hand sanitizer and masks and six feet and all this? Where, like, why, why did they have authority then? Well, I, okay, I, there's a lot of people that said what they said. They weren't the only ones. But those people were the lockdown advocates. These people were not thinking critically. We knew from the beginning. I was doing research on this for six months before I walked into Washington. Everyone with uh, any kind of sense of logic understood the data showed who was high risk. The data showed who was low risk. We should stop. We should do everything we could to protect the people who were high risk without destroying all the people that were low risk. That made sense, that was logic. What we saw over the 
months and months that the lockdowns, the Burks fauci lockdowns, remember, were implemented throughout the country with almost no exception. And people were dying. The elderly in the nursing homes were being killed. And uh, the infection was spreading. The, the, the policy that they asked for, they got. And it failed. And so the data was proving they were wrong, whether they were uh, they were not alone in believing uh, what they said. In fact, we see these people all over the world and in the United States, uh, so-called experts uh, still continuing this kind of behavior, uh, these kind of policy recommendations, even though they failed. So, you know, uh, all I know is what I uh, what I saw in person, which was that they didn't come in with scientific papers. They didn't come in. Uh, discussing in a sophisticated way at all the, the data, uh, the the uh, numbers, uh, the uh, the science that was being uh, produced all over the world, the evidence. Remember, the United States was uniquely incorrect about what to do. You, I don't think people understand that we were the only country of of our peer nations that shut down schools in September 2020. The Western European nations. No matter what you say about what they've done, they were not uh, irrational in school closures. They kept the schools open because they knew the data. Our people advised shutting schools, shutting businesses. That's lockdowns. So they got what they wanted. But what we see here, you know, beyond this, uh, that they got what they wanted and it failed. What's shocking and the sort of moral bankruptcy that is going on in our public health leadership is number one, they don't admit they're wrong. Number two, they destroyed people. Their advice destroyed millions of people, literally killed people, that policy of lockdowns, uh, because it was done in, in uh, really the, the morality of a public health official recommending draconian measures to stop a single infection without any discussion or regard of the harm of the policy. I was the only one during those months that talked about both internally in the White House as well as to the media, as you all know, um, the harms of the policy, okay, because people were dying. Half of cancer chemotherapy patients didn't get chemo because they were afraid. I could go on and on reciting the data. Half of 40 to 50 percent of stroke patients didn't call an ambulance. Heart attack patients didn't call an ambulance. They were made fearful of all medical facilities. Two thirds of cancer screenings didn't get done. These kinds of points were never talked about by anyone in the task force except me. And this was an abrogation of the moral uh, sort of compass that we all should have. It's not even that complicated. So uh, I don't know where they got their information, but what I do know is they didn't know the information. They never showed critical thinking. They never talked about a scientific paper and instead were focused on stopping COVID-19 cases at all costs. And we see that was enormously harmful. I mean, they destroyed this kind of policy advice that was implemented by the governors. It was implemented, by the way, at the written guidance of Dr. Burks. Dr. Burks, as the head of the task force, task force coordinator, wrote all of the policy advice to all the states, to all the governors. She disseminated it. She visited dozens of states 
doling out that guidance. That was the federal guidance. I visited one single state, the state of Florida, and they did something different. So she and others that complained that lives were lost due to incorrect policy from the federal guidance, they're talking to themselves. They are literally begging people to hold them accountable for what was said because they said it and they got what they wanted. It was implemented. It was followed throughout the entire country with rare exception. So based on your your description and, and what you talk about in your book, it's clear that Fauci on the media all the time and Burks traipsing around the country with her ramshackle data and colored charts uh, were not putting out what was the actual policy that the president had said. Donald Trump had said, we want to protect our most vulnerable and that we can't have a cure that is more dangerous than the disease. And yet for months and months, these these doctors, these health officials were going around repeatedly contradicting what the president was saying. Now, why was that allowed to go on? Well, this is the this is a, a big question, of course. Uh, you have to remember that before I even walked in at the end of July, beginning of August, the president was already using his common sense and saying it's super harmful to close the schools and kids don't have significant risk that are kid, healthy kids. Why would we do that and destroy them? Why would we close down the businesses when uh, it's incredibly destructive to working men and women in this country to families. Uh, And, you know, I think there's another part of this, which is obvious, which is that the lockdowns didn't harm the affluent people. Lockdowns are a luxury of the rich. Lockdowns are for the people who can do their businesses on Zoom calls or Skype uh, and order around the people to deliver their groceries and to deliver their their goods on Amazon, their lives are not that interrupted. But what we do see is a massive damage to lower income families and working class families. Uh, And, you know, this is documented in economics literature for decades, that it's not a choice of the economy versus lives. It's a choice of lives versus lives. When you have significant economic downturn, you have massive death. You have death. You are killing people. And you are also inflicting enormous harms on, you know, drug overdoses, on child abuse, spousal abuse, uh, you know, psychiatric illnesses on our younger generation, which is going to take decades to see what the what the ultimate harm was, really. Yet the president understood these things. This stuff is not that complicated, frankly. It's common sense, and he had common sense. And so he would go and talk about these things, but it was, of course, not the policy that was espoused by the White House official policy, which was the task force under doctors Burks and Fauci. And so uh, this is the problem in a politicized environment. Everybody, you know, you don't have to be a very insightful to recognize that the country was in an election year and everything was highly charged and politicized. Uh, And of course, the president has a massive amount of people who despise him. That's just an observer. uh, Any observer would say that. 
And so uh, when you have people that conflicted with the president's views, they were automatically lionized in the media. Uh, and so, um, you know, that that's sort of part of what when the ingredients uh, that damaged people so 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 heavily, really, in the U.S. So when we see the official policy that was doled out was the task force. That's obviously that's why the task force was formed and the task force policy in writing as well as in person and in the media was the policy of doctors Birx and Fauci. So I, you know, uh, why was it allowed? Well, you know, what I saw was, I was told several times, Scott, <clears throat> you're right, but don't rock the boat here. We're months away from an election. And that wasn't told to me by the president, by the way, that the president never said that to me. What I was told was don't rock the boat by the people who were the political side of his advice, of his advisors. And, uh, you know, to me, OK, I'm not a political advisor. I, I don't you know, I, I don't care about that. I was there because people were dying and uh, that had to stop. So uh, to me, I don't care what the political downside might have been, would have been whatever you want to say. The right policy has to be implemented. People are dying. And, uh, you know, I didn't see that happen. So, you know, uh, I wasn't in charge of anything. Unfortunately, I was not in charge of the task force. I was not in charge of any outgoing federal guidance. Uh, I was an internal advisor. But uh, it's very sad that the targeted protection that I wanted, meaning increasing the protection of the people who are at risk and stopping the destruction of the lower risk people that was not uh, not done. Now, I did get some things done for targeting, increasing the protection. I'll give you an example. Um, when I came in, I said to the task force, uh, you know, uh, we're not doing you're not doing everything to protect the high risk. And of course, that was met with anger by almost everybody in the room because they had been working for months on things. And of course, I have no doubt they wanted the pandemic to end. I want to make that clear. Everybody wanted the pandemic to end. I, I don't think there's anybody who didn't. Um, but when I said, are you doing everything? And they said, yes, we are. And I said, OK, how many times are you testing the nursing home staff? The recommendation was once per week when I walked in. OK, once per week, all the cases are brought into the tinderbox of risk, the nursing homes from the staff. They're out in the community. The nursing home residents are not, obviously. They were testing these people once a week. That is nowhere near enough. I said, yes, you should be testing them three times a week, five times a week. Uh, and we did increase that. And in fact, I worked very well with CMS uh, head, doc, uh, the head of CMS, who was Seema Verma. She understood this. And so we worked together to increase the frequency of testing in nursing home staff. And in fact, I suggested and we did uh, correlate when there was a high level of disease activity in the community of the nursing home. They must increase the testing because the people who were working there were in the community. And so uh, this is common sense. But so we did increase that. We got increased tests sent to the nursing homes. We got increased tests sent to senior centers because seniors frequent senior centers. I mean, this is, you know, one plus one equal two stuff. It wasn't being done. Uh, so that was implemented. We, we got um, increased testing sent to historically black colleges and universities because the faculty members are higher risk. They have more risk factors. 
Okay, so there were things, good things done uh, to increase the protection of the people at risk, but uh, the basic premise uh, and the and the policy of locking up everybody, of of preventing people from seeing their elderly family members while they were dying, uh, of destroying children, of of the isolation of young people. One out of four people college age thought of killing himself in June 2020 due to the isolation. That's not due to the virus. The virus didn't do that. Human beings did that policy. Okay. There was a tripling of medical visits by teenagers to doctors for self-harm during 2020 compared to 2019 during the lockdown. Self-harm means putting out cigarettes on your skin, slashing your wrists. That's teenagers. There was an explosion of suicide attempts in teenage girls. There was a massive increase in anxiety disorder, depressive disorder in teenagers during the lockdown. That's from the isolation. We have 52% of college age Americans, college student level people, 52% had an unwanted weight gain during the lockdown and that averaged 28 pounds. When you put on 28 pounds of fat, that's a lot. That's a health problem. Okay. We had, listen, we had half of uh, 18 to 24 year olds in the United States, according to surveys, say they are fearful of all social interaction. I mean, I'm not sure people understand how this country, because of the public health leadership, has severely harmed an entire generation. And what do you think's going on now, making young people wear masks, making young people think they are in danger and are a danger to everyone else, even though they're not? This is really, I mean, I don't know how you, I don't know how you describe this. I'm, I'm, like I'm actually at a loss You know the book Freakonomics, where we find out about a un, very unintended consequence from something? I, I think that we're going to see that um, with regard to these lockdowns, um, <clears throat> the school lockdowns, the business lockdowns. So <clears throat> I just have one more question for you. Um, <clears throat> as I was reading your book, and I'm kind of listening to you talk about this, this lack of data, lack of evidence-based decision-making, I'm wondering, are these people evil or are they incompetent? Because it seems like being a doctor is, all about depending on the data and the science. It's an iterative process. You know, things change, you adjust course, you tweak things. And and since there wasn't any of this, I mean, is it just incompetence or these people? I don't know. I don't want to think that they're evil, but it's scary to think that at such a high level in the public health sphere that these people are are incompetent. Yeah. Your your opinion? I, I don't think people I, I'm not going to say I am not going to say that people are these people are evil. Um, but I will say that there's a, a shocking level of incompetence, a shocking level of a lack of critical thinking, a complete lack of rigor that is that defines the scientific process. Uh, I think there is. Uh, there's a lot of question about um about a sort of a the 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 corrupt sort of thinking, and I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not really necessarily talking about financial corruption. I'm just talking about 
sort of a secondary motive that is, uh, I think there's a lot of people that are in too deep to admit they were wrong. They were in too deep to change course. And now they, as an example, they want to wildly finger point at people irrationally to blame others for what they did. Uh, This is a human fallibility in spades uh, that is on display here. But, uh, you know, uh, it's very tragic. Uh, Again, even without impugning people's motives, the the complete um, unwillingness to to apply critical thinking here is such a blunder. Uh, It's 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 a horrendous. It it is the most uh, really the most erroneous, heinous abuse of public health in modern history. And I think, uh, again, part of that is a complete disconnect. The people who have power, the elites, to use an overused phrase, have ignored the harms of their policies. And in a almost willful blindness to that, they then don't even live that way. Okay, we've seen this over and over again, right? I mean, it's not just the people on the task force, although some of them were caught visiting their relatives, right? I mean, you know, Dr. Burks is one example. Uh, After Thanksgiving, it was exposed that she was with her extended family, multi-generational family, even though she had personally warned people to not do that, told people to not do that. Uh, You know, we've seen the governor of California go to fancy restaurant indoors when no no other person was even allowed to do that. That was banned in California. You know, we've seen all kinds of a mass, really a huge a display of, uh, I, I, you have to say it's moral bankruptcy. I don't know how to, how to describe that. Yeah. So it's severe incompetence. There is absolutely no doubt. Uh, and we, we must understand this. To immediately or just very simply ascribe trust, ascribe expertise to people with certain credentials, we can't do that anymore. We must be critical thinkers ourselves. Americans have to be, you really have to step up, uh, make the effort, okay? It's hard. It's easy to just say, oh, whatever that guy says, I trust. Well, no. I mean, we, we must have learned by now. We not, We must be critical thinkers because otherwise, you're really making this, you're allowing someone else to make a very critical decisions for you and your family, including your own children. We can't do that anymore. You have to be critical thinkers. You have to use your own, you know, skills like you do to navigate your own life with everything else uh, and stop uh, being intimidated or whatever by people who have fancy titles, because a lot of these people are grossly incompetent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Atlas. The name of his book is A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. You can get it on Amazon and I recommend it. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much and thank you for fighting uh, when we just didn't have a lot of people out there fighting. I appreciate your support. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.